0: sought after for their success, and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, wanna help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Tom
1: Lorre and I will be your host today. Thanks for joining us. CEOs and leaders face many challenges and it is their job to provide solutions, right? Well, today's guest mentor has provided a number of solutions for many challenges. He is Clint Severson, someone we can learn from. Clint faced many challenges on the way to creating an overnight success in the difficult healthcare diagnostics field. It only took 22 years. He joined Abaxis in 1996 when it was a fledgling startup with just under three million in annual revenues. Last year, after creating a global company with nearly $300 million in revenue, it was acquired by Zoetis, the largest producer of medicine and vaccinations for pets and livestock, and it was acquired for $2 billion. Clint, welcome and congratulations on a successful exit for your team and your investors. Uh, You're welcome, and it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with your overnight success. Describe your journey uh, at Abaxis uh, when you joined and what you went through to bring it to this great uh, conclusion. Right.
2: Yeah, so when I joined the company, uh, it was about 2.9 million in revenue. We had uh, 6.7 million in losses. Uh, about half the products have been developed. And uh, we had a going concern in our annual report, and this is after investing about $55 million in the company. So we had less than a year's cash left and um, we were a public company. So everything that went on was public. And uh, that was my challenge. So in looking around as to how do you change this? huh? How do you change this direction? It was clear that one of the big issues was people didn't seem to care. And in finding out why don't the employees here seem to care about what's going on as far as the performance of the company it was that their interests were not aligned with the interests of the company that was the that was the fundamental problem and uh, they got paid the same whether the company did well or whether the company didn't do well and they figured well it's management's job to raise money so if the company runs out of money it's up to management to figure out how to get more money into the company and so folks were not pulling in a in a direction that would lead to any kind of success. So once I figured this out, I decided I need to align the interests of the employees with the interests of the company and the shareholders and the customers. And so fundamentally what I did is I cut everybody's base pay uh, significantly, put in a bonus program, okay, that if we hit our objectives, everybody would get twice what I took away back And uh, then we, um, I let some folks even set their own pay, a combination of base and bonus. Um, they, They got to set their own pay. If we hit the objectives, that's what they would get. And so it went from nobody pulling in any direction to all of a sudden everybody pulling in the same direction because in order to hit their objectives, their personal objectives, the company would have to hit its objectives. And of course, it changed the whole culture of the organization. And that was really the key to making all this happen.
1: And did you lose any people in the process? Yeah, so in the beginning, I lost about half the company. <laughs>
2: when I cut the pay, I lost about half the company. But you know what? That was okay with me because those people really didn't believe. And they walked with their with their feet, huh? They didn't believe that we would ever hit the objectives and they didn't think they'd ever get their money back. And the ones that stayed were the ones that believed. And so, um, yeah, so I ended up, um, yeah, kind of cleansing the company and keeping only the people that believed in what we were doing. And then we re- rebuilt from that point.
1: And how did your, uh, I hadn't realized it was a public company at the time because you were it really was. a young company for yep. being public. Um, how did the board, how did you and the board interact on all this? This is kind of a change from what people are used to doing. Right,
2: yeah, so it was, the board considered a very high risk strategy, huh? very high risk, uh, and there was a lot of debate on the board about this approach. But in the end, they agreed that the old way certainly didn't work, and that probably the only way to get the company into a position where it was self-sustaining was to do some high risk stuff. And so, um, yeah, so eventually everybody came around and we all pulled together.
1: Now, in doing that, uh, and one of the things that's also another picky area for me is the setting of, obje- of, of objectives. Right. So a lot of people are listening. This is the beginning of the year. They usually they do it at the end of the year, as you right. well know. And then as you go into the year, you've got your objectives set. But this is something uh, that is timeless and how you set objectives and, as a company right. or as an organization. How, how did your planning, uh, your objective uh, planning, when did it begin and how did you go about doing it?
2: Yeah, so, uh, so it began, uh, so I joined in June and this whole process uh, where I changed the pay structure and everything uh, was completed in September, October. And, um, and so the f- fiscal year for Abaxis at that time was uh, ended March 31st, so April 1st was our new fiscal year. And so as we got into the planning process for the new fiscal year, I asked all the department heads what would you like to get out of this company over the next 12 months? What is your objective personally over the next 12 months? And I let them fundamentally set their pay. I said, how much money do you all wanna make? How do you want your career to grow? What is it that you personally want? And then everybody set what they wanted. And then I said, okay, now in order to achieve that, this is the performance the company would have to achieve to be able to afford to pay that. So then let's talk about what the, what has to happen uh, in order for you to achieve what you want to achieve. And that's how the planning started. And then the objectives rolled out of those discussions. Um, yeah, once everybody knew what had to happen to be able to meet their personal objectives, we had everybody pulling in the same direction.
1: Now, John Doerr, who's uh, formerly the managing partner for Kleiner Perkins has a book out now called OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. That's a program that he learned from Andy Grove when he worked at Intel. And it's been used by Google and a number of other people. Now, one of the, and I haven't gotten through all of it yet, but I, I, I grew up in the old MBO system. I like what I've heard about what you were doing in terms of starting with talking to people about what they wanna get out of all of this. I think that's a great place to start. And Dora Dor does some of that as well apparently from the program that he's implemented. Uh, but he, he uh, disengages the objectives from compensation uh, which I'm trying to myself figure out how you do that. Uh, you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so the first question that came to me as we did our first planning meeting is the question was what has to happen in order for us to achieve what, what we all want to achieve personally. And at that particular point in time, our gross margins were minus 50%. Huh? So I said, guys, the gross margins have to at least break even over the next 12 months for you guys to achieve any of the things that you want to achieve. So that became the company goal. Huh? Out of, out of, in the first five minutes, the company goal became break the margins even. So then the question was, how do you do it? Uh, What part does the factory play? What part does the sales and marketing play? What part does finance play? What part does HR play? And so we identified all the uh, functions, okay, that have to work together to make this happen. And um, yeah, then I asked my CFO at the time, you know, how long do you think it'll take to break the margins even? And she said, oh man, it's minus
1: 50%. It's gonna take, more
2: than a year, huh? It's to well,
1: hold that year. thought, we're gonna come back in a minute and you can tell us what happened. <laughs> okay. uh, we're gonna to go to a break, when we return, we will continue with Clint <laughs> Severson and the secrets he learned along the way in growing the value of a healthcare startup to $2 billion. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Loy and today we are
1: talking to Clint Severson, a native of North Dakota, who came to Silicon Valley and spent the past 22 years growing a successful healthcare diagnostics business that was acquired last year for $2 billion. Clint, when we uh, went to break, we were talking about uh, getting margins in order uh, to create some value for your shareholders in the company and also to help pay for the compensation you program so how did it go
2: yeah so um yeah so we set the goal and um the thought was it was going to take a year or two to break these margins even and so i decided that well guys if we break the margins even when that event happens i'm going to double your bonus i'm going to double your bonus now we have to pay for it right we still have to pay for it we still have to get the get the uh, earnings where they need to be and the sales where they need to be. But I will double that bonus if we break the margins even. And guess what? We broke the margins even in three months. Three months. And it's the power of 65, 70 people all pulling in the same direction, knowing exactly what their part, okay, and making this happen is. And then the peer pressure you have around that whole system Uh, because if everybody does what they need to do, but two or three people miss it, okay, it drags the whole team down, and nobody wants to be part of dragging the team down. So the motivation is really high, really strong.
1: Now, you have and continue to sit on a number of boards. As you uh, do your board work, uh, you probably see some of the more traditional compensation programs. Do you nudge the CEOs to look at a different way of doing things?
2: I do, I do. And in many cases, I'm successful at it, huh? Where they implement a program, probably not as aggressive as I implemented it, uh, but clearly it helps, it works, it works. When you, people need to be working for themselves at some level, huh? And of course, why do people go to work? They go to work to make money, uh, to pay the rent, buy a house, raise a family and they go to work to advance their career. That's their motivation. So you need to have an environment. If you want a high performance team, you need an environment where they can make more money and grow their career. And if you can do that, it's. Magic, huh?
1: And I, I also found in my career that one of the other things is that most people like to go to work and come home at night feeling they did something worthwhile, they, exactly, something right. meaningful. Yeah. And of course, yeah. we've we both have the luxury of being in the healthcare field. Right. Uh, we're not making widgets; we're helping people improve uh, the quality of their life. So exactly. I think we've got that going for us we as do. well. Yeah. Now, what was it that you know? you this company's in trouble. You're out there working, doing some other things. What was it that attracted you to Abaxis? What did you see uh, that inspired you to take the job? Right, right. A fantastic product. They had a fantastic product.
2: Now it didn't work, huh? And so, in the era of startups and Silicon Valley, you have this "fake it till you make it" approach. and uh, And they were faking it until they made it. They faked it going public, huh? In my opinion, because they really didn't didn't function well, huh? And uh, the only way that you can break the gross margins even is to increase the quality and reduce the cost. That's the only way. Because in healthcare, you know, the government really sets the price, right? And while we had a veterinary business that wasn't under that kind of scrutiny, we had a medical business that had to pull its share. And so that means to increase the quality and reduce the cost, they all tie in together, In order for that to happen, um, in order for the gross margins to break even, that had to happen. And that was the part of the factory's job, huh? And uh, it was part of R&D to identify the areas of improvement. It was the factory's job to implement it. And it was the finance job to keep score, to share with everybody where they were at. Every single Friday, the finance department gave everybody the score so they knew where they were at. at all times. And um, yeah, and so, like I say, over time, it gets better, continuous incremental improvement, it gets better and better and better and better.
1: This is Tom Lawyer, you're listening to The Mentor's Radio Show. Today we have Clint Severson, and we're talking about the secrets he learned in creating a company valued at $2 billion in healthcare. So, you mentioned the product. The company was a Abaxos. What was the product? Okay, so the product was point-of-care blood chemistry. And that's kind of a new area, wasn't it? Yep. point-of-care point testing? Point-of-care was new, yeah. Explain yeah. for the audience the difference between regular diagnostics and point-of-care diagnostics. Okay,
2: so let's talk about blood chemistries first, because a lot of people don't might not understand what blood chemistries are. They're organ function tests. So you test the blood, and you by testing the blood, you can determine if there's kidney problems, liver problems, pancreas problems, cardiac problems. So it's kind of the first line of testing, huh? So if you go to the doctor and you say, doc, I feel terrible. I don't know if there's anything wrong with me or not. Can you help me? Probably the first thing they want is a blood chemistry test panel to determine whether you're really sick or not. And normally you take a tube of blood, you send it off to a laboratory, a day or two later, you get the results. With our point of care machine, it was five drops of blood on a plastic disc Stick it in the machine, push a button, 12 and a half minutes later, you got 14 blood chemistries. Fantastic, huh? Most people didn't even believe it, huh? And uh, so the product was fantastic. And um, the only challenge was in the early days, was to get it to work, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Small problem. So, yeah, so it, you know you have the concept, you have the idea, and you have the basic technology was worked out, but you gotta put it all together and it's gotta produce a result huh, that is accurate, precise, and
1: uh, that was the challenge. And I'm assuming as you looked at the Piccolo, which is the name of the device, uh, that with the changes in the healthcare system, there was an opportunity to enter the market because it was lower cost, faster, whatever, is that correct? Right. I mean, you saw the opportunity to be disruptive?
2: Yeah, so the, here's the opportunity in a nutshell. The cost of getting a blood chemistry test done is mostly overhead. It's the big lab. It's the PhD chemists. It's the pathologists. It's the transportation. It's all the overhead. With point of care, zero overhead. Add the sample, push the button, get the result. No overhead.
1: Which means you could also take that and put it outside a regular lab into yeah. other uh, uh geographies or other uh, places where they put it in clinics, doctor's offices or whatever. Uh, You
2: could put it in ambulances. Clearly the military used it. We were in all forward hospitals and rear hospitals in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, yeah, we were on the ship, Navy ships. We were all over the place.
1: Great, when we come back, we wanna talk a little bit more about your experience at Abaxis. This is Tom Laurie. We're talking to Clint Severson and the secrets he learned along the way in growing a company from just barely making, not actually, not losing money to becoming a very successful company in a $2 billion valuation.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome
1: back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we're talking to Clint Severson, who built a very successful company in the diagnostic space that was sold last year to Zoetis for $2 billion. Uh, we were talking about Abaxis. What, um, you know, I did turnarounds. You, this was, a I, I would call what you did at Abaxis a turnaround startup. That's what I, I've i done a couple of those. You kind of, they're startups, <laughs> but you got to turn them around before right. you can get them going. Um, what were some of the ghosts that you found in the closet? I always found that they, you know, when you look at a company, you get excited about it, but then you go in and there's these doors you open and the ghosts fall out, or the skeletons.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I think I the biggest ghost I dealt with was the fact that the most important tests in the blood chemistry area, the most difficult ones were never developed. Huh? I mean, that was the, the biggest problem because Unless you have a complete menu of tests uh, for your blood chemistry machine, the clinical utility of it goes way down if you don't have a a complete menu. And the most important, the most difficult tests were yet to be developed. And that was never clear to anybody in the company until the uh, issue of how do you take it from where it was to where you want it to be. And uh, that was probably the biggest ghost. I think the second biggest ghost was that in the factoring this, uh, were not uh, validated. Huh? So what was what would happen is you'd end up, at the end of the day, half the product that you made would not pass your specifications and it would go in the dumpster. But it would go in the dumpster in the final package. Huh? The most expensive <laughs> scrap you have is when it's in the final package. And then uh, the second thing was is the uh, people in the factory didn't really know what the critical steps were that were causing all this scrap to take place. And so uh, the basic fundamentals of the business uh, had not been identified, documented, and yeah.
1: And did you put in something like a Six Sigma program or a Deming type yeah, so, program? Yeah, so of course to break the
2: margins even, they have to improve the manufacturing process. Huh? And so now all of a sudden we have R&D and the factory people working together to figure out how to reduce the scrap, huh? And of course, there are always assumptions as, well, the reason we have high scrap is because a vendor is providing a a good part, or a uh, supplier isn't supplying something that is pure enough, or there's all kinds of theories as to why something's not working. And now that we're focused on, hey, we're gonna get twice the bonus, and this is a big number, we gotta fix this quickly, huh? And so everybody's working together to identify the root cause of the problems. Huh? And then once we identify the root cause of the problems, guess what? To fix wasn't that difficult. The hard part is finding the root cause. The root cause. Yeah. And, but if everybody's focusing on the root cause and nobody's hiding anything, huh? because remember, back at with the old system, if somebody made a mistake or somebody didn't identify something, they were, they'd beat them up, huh? Yeah, and so, but in the new system, hey, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any difference, okay? Whose fault it is. All we have to do is fix it and we get twice the bonus. Yeah. So all of the, all the stuff came out on the table
1: very quickly. And when, and when you sold the company, how many employees were there? About 750. So you talked about, I think, 60 or 70 when you right. came in, not 750. So as you grow the company, one of the challenges is hiring. Hiring. Uh, what did you look for in the people that you hired?
2: Okay, so the most important thing is knowing what you want. Knowing what you want is so key because if you don't, if, you don't, if it isn't clear what you want, you'll sometimes come across a star and because you don't know what you want, you let them go, huh? Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time making sure that we knew what we, what we, what we wanted. Okay. Then the second thing is we had a compensation program that if we didn't hit our objectives, you wouldn't get paid. So it was a self-selecting process because people that didn't believe we could do it took themselves out of the picture very quickly because they'd say, this base pay isn't high enough. But the people that believed in what we were doing would say, wow, look at all this pay I'm gonna get uh, if I join this company. Huh? So that was a self-selection process there. huh? And uh, yeah, and then, um, It's reinforced huh? in in the part of the company culture.
1: It's reinforced right away. So that's how we did it. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio. We're talking today with Clint Severson, who built Abaxos into a $2 billion valued company on the public exchanges. Um, So you're talking about hiring people and this, you've got a a sales background. I do, I'm a sales guy. You're a sales guy. I'm a sales guy. And uh, of course, Variable compensation programs are the norm uh, at American Hospital Supply, where I spent a lot of time. Uh, it was 100% uh, variable, uh, so you're used to that. And you came in and pretty much took a, a, what you learned in the sales side and put it on the other side. Yep. It, was, it sounds like that's what you did. Now, in in um, in doing that, uh, which is fascinating uh, to pull that off. Uh, you really do take out the supports for people where they have to perform. Right. Now, the team, how did they, um, so how did, so you're implementing this, you got some people that are around, you're doing all of this. How are you interfacing with them in the first year on all of this? How does it going? Yeah, so. It's kinda, uh, I mean, you're still in the field of uncertainty, right? Oh, and, you're serious uncertainty. Yeah. You? When you think
2: about it, you have less than a year of cash in the bank. And raising money is always difficult when the company doesn't have a good track record. And yeah, no, it's a huge challenge. And uh, the interesting thing is that the people that stayed, huh? we had a lot of people leave when I changed the pay program. The people that stayed really believed, huh? they really believed. And so that was the magic that kind of turned everything around is this core group of people that believed huh? and started focusing on the things that were important. okay? And then as we added new team members, they came in under a program that uh, was highly variable, huh? but they were the risk takers. They were the ones that they looked at what we were doing and said, wow, this is fantastic. huh?" And um, yeah, they signed up, you know, they signed up and that's what you need. You need people that are into the performance culture. And then of course, when they get the big paycheck, they can buy a house or buy a new car, and that reinforces it, huh? It reinforces it, and of course, then you throw equity in the picture, and they can actually see, you know, the the company's value increasing, and they have a piece of that, huh? And they feel part of it. It's like it's their company.
1: How was your retention?
2: So our retention on um, people that we wanted to keep was very high, huh? It was very high. Uh, there were some folks, okay, that could never get into the risk part of it, okay, that you know didn't stay that long. So we had a we had a we had a performance culture of risk-taking people that um, set their own goals, set their own pay, and uh, all they had to do was hit the objectives, okay, that they set uh, to achieve their success.
1: So, now we talked uh, about your past coming up through sales. And one of the things as you well know, and I know well, is that as a CEO, you've got all these different functions. You've got the finance, uh, the technical functions, manufacturing, sales and marketing, whatever. So you, I don't know if you remember the uh, book by Jerry Kramer, Left Guard. So you had this area of expertise. How did you protect yourself from not being blindsided in areas that you weren't, uh, you you didn't really know as deeply as you knew the sales and marketing side?
2: Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so I, I've never had a life science course in my life in university. Huh? I went through geology and, and astronomy and that, that's how I got my, huh? and so here I'm running a multi-hundred million dollar life science company. So people say, how oh, in the hell did you do that? And so here's the deal. If they can't explain it to me so I can understand it, I don't believe it. Huh? Yeah. And so this system I put in place with the compensation, it really took care of itself. Huh? because the, the folks that were responsible for their piece of the goal huh, uh, held the success of everybody in the company in their hands. And so that peer pressure and that responsibility you feel, I mean, it, it, it's self-perpetuating, it takes care of itself. And over time it, it builds bonds that are stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And,
1: um, and I was never blindsided because of that. Well, when we come back, I wanted to ask you about what took place before Abaxis that brought you to this point and who are your mentors. Uh, this is Tom Laurie. we're talking with Clint Severson and the secrets he learned along the way in building a company that was sold last year for $2 billion.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Loring. Today we're talking to Clint Severson, who spent 22 years creating an overnight success with the uh, Abaxis in the diagnostics field. So we've learned a lot about what happened at Abaxis, and some very interesting things in terms of your, your approach to uh, getting the business turned around and moving in the right direction. Uh, tell us about how you uh, about your background. I mean, if you're from North Dakota. I, I guess you grew up in. Born in Minnesota, but mostly grew up in North Dakota. You don't find a lot of people from North Dakota out here in Silicon Valley. Oh, no,
2: not so many. Yeah. So, yeah. So I grew up in Minot, North Dakota, a town of about at the time twenty five, thirty thousand people. And uh, the big upside to being from North Dakota was number one, you got all your education, including university, in your in your town. Huh. So, so when you graduated from uh, the university you didn't have a pile of student debt now I had fifty six hundred dollars of student debt now and you calculate that to 2019 uh, numbers it's about twenty twenty five thousand dollars so it was significant but it wasn't over the top huh? and then secondly there's lots of opportunity if you know what you want to do there's lots of opportunity to get a job huh, in North Dakota and you could get a job at the same time you were in school and so my advantage that I've had over all these years is I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was 16 years old. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I was and I laid out a strategy. This is what has to happen in order for me to achieve this goal. Huh? I needed a degree in business, because huh? I wanted to be a businessman. And I needed experience. I needed some management experience. Huh? So I got a job in a grocery store, and I got lucky and I got a battlefield promotion and I became a produce manager at age 18. So I got this management experience. And then I, needed, I knew I needed sales experience because nothing happens in business until something is sold. And the top of, of sales experience is capital equipment. <laughs> huh? Asking somebody to part with a lot of money to buy something that will last a long period of time. Okay, so I figured, okay, I needed, after my management experience, I needed capital equipment experience, and where am I gonna get it? I thought selling appliances would be a good approach. Huh? So I went to the local Ace Hardware store that sold Frigidaire appliances, and they said, well, we don't have any, any jobs for inexperienced salespeople, but uh, we need a fertilizer delivery guy. Would you be interested in that? So just to get my foot in the door, I said, no problem, I'll take the fertilizer delivery job. So I did, and then over time I worked my way into the appliance department. Huh? And before oh, well, got, it's
1: because as as they got to know you, they, they, how right. reliable you were, right. they could trust you and they wanted to move they probably adopted you in some way, right? <laughs> well, they wanted to see you succeed. They're <laughs> such a hard worker. They did. And I always told them
2: what I wanted. Uh, so when I had when there's an opportunity, I'd like to take advantage of it. So they knew what I was looking for, huh? And so, yeah. Okay, so then um, I got, um, I uh, ended up with a customer that happened to be the sales manager of the local Chevrolet dealership. And I sold him a house full of appliances, plus a lawnmower. And he said, you know what? We need you at our dealership, huh? <laughs> and that's moving way up the capital yeah. equipment line, huh? And so I took a job at the local Chevrolet dealership. So by the time I finished my university, I had management experience, I had capital equipment sales experience, and I had my business degree, and all I needed was opportunity. I needed opportunity. So I bought myself a van, and I traveled around the country looking for opportunity. And I traveled all over the country for three months. Well, I landed in San Francisco, within a week, maybe 10 days, I had three job offers and I didn't even have a permanent address.
1: And I said- And these these weren't for car dealers? No, these were sales jobs. Okay, so
2: one offer was with Lindsay Olives. Okay, so if you go to the grocery store, you see, and Lindsay Olives is a cooperative, huh? It's owned by the farmers. And it was actually a really great opportunity for a a consumer product uh, because it was a kind of family operation, huh? And the second one opportunity uh, job offer I, I had was with Smith Corona. Okay. Which at that time was an office machines company. Huh? They did typewriters, but they also did copiers. And then the third opportunity was Dow chemical. They were, they were starting a health and consumer products division. And you know, my goal always was when I found the opportunity was to go to work for a large company. Cause I knew I'd get good training at a large company. So it didn't take long to accept the Dow Dow job. And uh, then it was a journey, huh? It was a journey know, knowing what you want, having a strategy to get there, and going through all the motions, huh? Getting the training and uh, taking advantage of the opportunity, yeah.
1: This is Tom Laurie. you're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. So you went to the, so let's talk a little bit about I had the big company experience, then I got into the small company mm-hmm. experience. What, what? How would you compare and contrast those two experiences?
2: Okay, so they're different, huh? Mm-hmm. They're totally different. So in a big company, politics plays a role in your success, huh? Who you know, who likes you, mm-hmm. and uh, that goes along with the performance, huh? Yeah. In a small company, like I explained to uh, folks that I was interviewing for jobs in a small company, politics doesn't play a role. It's how far you can pull the sled that makes the difference. Huh? So performance is much more important in a small company. You can hide in a big company for a period of time. huh? Actually, some people hide for many years in a big company. In a small company, you can't hide. Huh?
1: Yeah. Well, I always tell the, I tell the story that when I was a company president at American Hospital Supply, uh, everybody wanted my job. They would hope that I'd fall off a ledge and die. Right. <laughs> And running startups, no one wants my job. No, I mean, there's a big difference <laughs> that, in big terms difference. of that. Was, did luck play a role along the way in any way for you?
2: Yeah, so uh, you could say, um, you know, did luck play a role? You know, I guess I was lucky that this headhunter um, would uh, take my appointment, mm-hmm. the one that got me the job with Dow Chemical, huh? because part of my job search was meeting with recruiters and this particular fellow, took my phone call, invited me to his office, and interviewed me and thought I was a uh, good potential. Okay, had, had he not interviewed me, I wouldn't have had that opportunity, huh? Um, and then, uh, actually, another job offer I got in that whole process that just comes to mind right now was in, in commercial real estate in San Francisco. And this was a commercial real estate company where I showed up for the interview, and there's a line of 25 people, okay? And he gets to me, asks me three questions. And he says, okay, you sit over here in the corner. Everybody else, he he excused. Okay, he had me sit in the corner. And uh, then after he interviewed all the people, I asked him, why did you pick me? And he said, because you had a track record. You could show me how you accomplished something in business. And that's what I'm looking for. I wanna hire you. So you think how my life would be different if I would've taken that commercial real estate job versus the Dow Chemical job. Is that luck? You know, I don't know, huh? But clearly, the harder you work, the luckier you, you get, The luckier huh? you get, that. yeah.
1: Well, when we come back, we're going to talk, so we've got one more segment left, we've got a couple of key questions to ask you, uh, we're going to take a break, uh, When we, we'll continue with Clint Severson when we come back. If you have any questions or feedback, call anytime at 844-810-8255, if you've missed Part of the show and any other episodes, you can go to our website, TheMentorsRadio.com and subscribe to future shows when you're there. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back, this is Tom Laurie. We're talking to Clint Severson who is uh, the CEO of Abaxus, uh which was an overnight success after 22 years and sold last year for $2 billion. Minot, North Dakota. Where'd you go to school? Minot State University. Minot, I think that is a fascinating story in itself because we have so many people out here that are Harvard and Stanford and whatever. When you go back, I'm sure you do. You go back and talk to those students. What do you tell yeah. them? I mean, you're you're the celebrity from right. Silicon Valley, right? Successful yeah. guy. Yeah,
2: yeah. So uh, so I go back three four times a year, and I support the university's entrepreneurial program. So I'm kind of connected with what's going on, uh, and they now have a both a major and a minor in entrepreneurial studies. So uh, I've supported that program, and you know, here's the deal. Now, the deal is. The debits and the credits go in the same place, whether it's Minot State or Harvard. And getting the basic fundamentals of an education, okay, the training, it's not that much different whether you're at Minot, North Dakota, or you're at Stanford, California. The fundamentals are the same. Now, you might get a little more inspiration at Stanford, you might have some more famous professors at Stanford, but the fundamental training is all the same. huh? So I encourage people to go to a university that has the self-interest of graduating everybody, no matter what, huh? yeah. And that the real action, okay, for your building your career and your track record is your experience on the job. That's where the action is. And um, yeah, and so, uh, and if you can do both, if you can work putting to use the stuff you've learned in the classroom. It sinks in your brain and it never leaves. Huh? It's putting it to use. And if you can do that at the same time, huh, you are way ahead of your competition because most people don't do that. Huh? And in the end, like one fellow told me one time, in business, it's how far you can pull the sled. Huh? It's how much can you contribute to the organization okay, for its success.
1: And what's, is that the best advice you ever got or was there another piece of advice that you got along the way?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, so another another piece of advice I got was, it's the gross
1: margin, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: the, uh, what, what's the, um, advi- What? in all the people that you've seen in life, the people that you've found that are the happiest, the most at peace with themselves, Is there any characteristic that they have that separates them from other people?
2: The one characteristic that I've observed is uh, that they've had self-accomplishment. They've accomplished something, huh? In other words, they set a goal and they accomplished it. And uh, in some cases, when they get recognition, that's just kind of the cherry on top, getting that recognition. But the satisfaction of accomplishment, I think, is the number one.
1: But that doesn't mean you have to be president of the United States. It does States. not, it's no. Not. It, it could not. be a lot of things, it can, right? Yeah,
2: it can, it, it de- it's personal. It depends on, on the person and what they
1: choose to do. Yeah. And if we could, what's the dumbest thing you ever did? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let me think about it here a little bit. Because I've done some dumb things in my yeah. life. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> uh, but, um Yeah. I mean, what's the dumbest thing I've ever done? Or just a little one. We've all done uh, dumb things. Yeah. No, um, I have to think about that. Huh? What's the
1: dumbest thing I've ever done? Okay. What are your unique strengths? Yeah. Well,
2: you know what? I think my unique strengths are my ability to identify what I want, okay, and then put a plan together to make it happen and then execute on it.
1: And it sounds like you've been doing it since you were 16. Since I was 16. So you've had a lot of practice of doing this. Again,
2: I tell the college students that I come in contact with, the most important thing is knowing what you want to do. Because like the book, Outliers, 10,000 hours of practice. Okay. So, So in that book, the author talks about the difference between the average and the outlier. And the big difference is 10,000 hours of practice. And so if you start early, you get uh, more time to practice and you'll be better.
1: We're out of time. Thanks a lot, Clint, for joining us today. We've been talking with Clint Severson, the CEO of Abaxis, former CEO of Abaxis. If you tune in late, you can listen to this and past shows by downloading podcasts by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. Thank you for listening. We will be back next weekend at this time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. This is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness.
0: It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.